Okay, I'll read, I'm going to read chapter 10 this morning, and we're going to try to cover chapters 11 and 12. The, the majority of the focus will be on chapter 12. Well, let me pray and we'll read this. Lord God, we praise your holy name. Thank you for your abundant grace. Mercy shown to us. Gospel given to us. Help us to understand your truth. Help me to explain it. Prepare us for worship today with our brothers and sisters. That they all may come. I'm anticipating your blessing, your presence, and to worship the name above all names. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the message was true, and what of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Upaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. In the sound of his words, like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, Understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael... One of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. When I opened my mouth and spoke... And said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O oh man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, 
May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Chapter 10 brings us to the final portion of the book of Daniel. This is the last vision given to Daniel, and chapters 10, 11, and 12 are a single unit. Chapter 10, we see the introduction to the vision, to the last vision. In chapter 11, um, that provides the vision itself. And then chapter 12 is the conclusion um, of the prophecy. And remember this, that the the book of Daniel um, is neatly divided, 12 chapters, neatly divided into two halves. The first six chapters are historic. That is um, history recorded most of which is under Babylonian kings. Um, enter Darius, you know, chapter 6, um, who serves to oversee the newly um, ascendant Medo-Persia Empire. Medo-Persian Empire. One of the primary themes of the book of Daniel, as we have seen, um, is indeed the sovereignty of God in history, emphasized in what we might call political history. That is, God controls the rise and the fall of empires. He calls them to office. He ordains their office. And through providence, they take office. And it's all for the sake of his own purposes, whether it's revealed to us or not. And any and all who rule as kings or those sitting magistrates, um, he puts them in office and he replaces them when he's done with them. He's sovereign, he rules, he is king. All of which serve the ultimate purposes of God's kingdom. We've seen that throughout. That's the first half. The second half, chapter 7 through 12, are history predicted. They're prophetic. They're not so neat and tidy. They're made up mostly of of Daniel's first-person experience with regard to the visions given to him by God himself. Um, visions of the future, that is Daniel's future, not ours. In chapter 7 and 8, we see visions given during the reign um, of Belshazzar, um, the, the, you know, the rise and fall of, of empires. We see the coming of the kingdom of the Son of Man, the one who ascends and receives power and authority from the Ancient of Days. He is the stone cut out of a mountain without hands, a mountain that will grow to cover the earth. That's now. We live in this time. Chapter 9, we see Daniel's prayer. We see God's response to the prayer regarding the completion of exile in Babylon, the rebuilding of the temple then, not a future temple, in the coming of the Messiah, who is the fulfillment of the temple, who is the end of temporal sacrifice and offering. We looked at the famously known but not so well understood 70th week of Daniel, we looked at last Lord's Day, uh, which again has arrived. The 70th week has arrived. 
If you missed that, you, you can listen online as we worked our way through that. So the book of Daniel is dealing not with the end of history, beloved, but rather the end times of the Old Testament order and the beginning of the messianic kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and his ascension. And again, it involves four empires, not five. Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome during the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. Four kingdoms. Now, understanding these visions will serve as great comfort for God's people, that is, God's people in the day of Daniel, um, in the future, spanning some 350 and 400 years from the time of Daniel. When they have this in their hands and they're going through what we're about to read, it's going to provide great comfort, reminding them that God is indeed in sovereign control of everything that we're experiencing. And that's what we see in verse 1. Notice, in the third year, now it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. So, Two years have passed. Two years have passed since the decree went out from Cyrus to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Daniel is well into his 80s. The exile has come to its end. People are making their way back to the holy city. You would think that Daniel would be at the front of the line. But he's not. He stays back. And here he is. And perhaps um, Daniel thought the greatest thing he could do to serve the extension of the kingdom was uh, to remain there and give himself to the strategy of intercessory prayer on behalf of the people who are returning. Notice, he says, the, the message is true, it is firm, that is because God ordained it. And the vision is about, notice verse 1, it's about conflict. Conflict. Warfare that is about to come. So we're being told in the vision that it's about warfare, particular conflicts that will rage among Gentiles who will rule Palestine. And this language is often used with regard to the great miseries involved with warfare, which can be fierce. So that's what's going to be described for us in chapter 11. When we get there, we'll look at it briefly next week. Conflicts of misery associated with warfare that will greatly affect Daniel's people, the Jews. And then when we get to chapter 12, he describes the final war, that is before the time of the burial of the Old Testament order, if you will, through a war between the Romans and the Jews, which I believe is being described in chapter 12, verse 1. You see that language. Jesus uses that language in the Olivet Discourse with regard to, to that which will fall upon them in 70 AD. So in addition to conflicts being described on earth, we see another conflict, that it's beyond the sight of our eyes, and that is warfare that takes place 
in the angelic realm. So just like the book of Revelation, the veil's being pulled back and we're, we're taken um, from that which is being described on earth to that which is happening um, in the heavens. And that's what chapter 10 shows for us, and that is that, that there's more to history than meets the eye. The history that will come to Daniel's people will be very difficult. That's the message, the conflict, warfare. And when daily life turns turbulent, and warfare is going to sweep through the land on a number of occasions, the people will cry out, as we naturally do, is God in control of all this? And this, Daniel, this last vision, is the answer. Yes. He is in control. And the godly will be able to look at Daniel chapters 12 through, or 10 through 12 and say, yes, he is in control, and indeed, this is serving his purposes. Verse 1, he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In other words, he gets the, the, the general import of the vision itself. Because in another part, if, in chapter 12, verse 8, we read there, um, I heard but could not understand regarding details of the vision. He gets the general import, but particular details he doesn't understand. He doesn't comprehend. So here then in verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the three weeks were completed. Now, things were troubling this brother. Daniel is greatly troubled. And remember, this is two years after the edict that Cyrus gave for Daniel's people to return home. Okay, so two years later, here he is, these departed exiles were making very slow progress at home. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe the trouble. They're being hindered. They're being opposed, these newly returned exiles. So Daniel, knowing that they're struggling, is greatly troubled, so he fasts from choice foods, meat, wine. He abstains from various lotions uh, that made life much more comfortable in, in desert lands. Moisturizer. <laughs> Getting ashy, I suppose. So these are all signs um, of seriousness in mourning. So he, he fasts from these things. And we know that his lamentation um, consisted of, of prayer, not mere anguish, but prayer. We read in verse 12, notice, from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. It's a man of prayer. We've seen this before. A man given to prayer, this Daniel. Verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz 
His body was like that of beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them. They ran away to hide themselves. Now, this vision of a man, this, this is no mere man, beloved. This is no mere man. Daniel is overwhelmed by what he, he sees. He sees a vision. This is one like the son of man. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, go read Revelation 1 describing almost word for word the son of man who appeared to John on the, while he was on the island of, of Patmos. In Revelation 1.13, his loins are girded with gold, right? We read again, a face of lightning, a blinding reality. Verse 16, Revelation 1, his countenance was like the sun. His eyes a lamp of fire, arms and feet like brass. He had a voice of a multitude. This is a great roar, the sound of many waters. So Daniel provides for us a description precisely like the one John gives in the book of Revelation. One like the Son of Man. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The demonstration of his glory, his divinity, his holiness, that he alone holds the destiny of all nations in his hand. He holds the destiny of Israel in his hand. He holds the destiny of individuals in his hand. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. The eternal one, second person of the Godhead. Pre-incarnate vision given to Daniel on this day. So here this, this image of you know, being clothed in priestly linen, if we, we think of the Old Testament, Daniel would be reminded most certainly of the Day of Atonement in the way that forgiveness has been ordained by God, that is through sacrifice. The hands of the priest, they slit the throat of the sacrifice. And then this face of lightning, the sound of a tumult, thunderous sounds, would remind Daniel of God's covenant faithfulness. So here Daniel's reminded of forgiveness and faithfulness of Almighty God. Now I, Daniel, verse 7, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So Daniel, he's accompanied by others, we don't know how many, but just like the days of Saul on the road to Damascus, when the Lord appeared to him, everyone else was blinded from seeing what Paul saw. Now, they were stricken speechless in, in, in terror. And here we see the same thing. Daniel's left alone to see this vision, and the, the men with him are full of dread. You know, understanding the effect of God's presence here, we're reminded of how impotent, puny, unimportant, and unglorious even the most glorious man is in the presence of holy God. 
This is very Isaiah-like. Isaiah 6, the very presence of God, even veiled, had an effect like this, that this man falls on his face, a fallen creature. Isaiah, a man of great dignity, the most holy man in the land, comes undone, unraveled, ruined like Isaiah, the holiest man in this day, a man of honor like Isaiah was also undone in the presence of God. In other words, human dignity in the presence of God is quite literally turned into corruption. This man melts before God. What, what did Isaiah say? I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Sin is magnified in the presence of, of holy God. In Revelation 1, in verse 17, when John saw the glorified Christ, he fell at his feet as though what? A dead man. So, needless to say, presence with God leaves, no doubt, an indelible mark. You know, I hear these fools today who claim to have been caught up to heaven in the presence of God, and they just chopped it up. Chit-chat. You never hear this. They're utter lying fools. When God draws close to Daniel, a glorious man, he's described as a glorious one, a glorious man of God, he's left on his face, trembling, prostrate, and unconscious. And people today say they're caught up and they just chop it up with the Lord of glory. Right. Believe that? <laughs> they write books. Little boys taken up into heaven. And Christians buy into it. Read the Bible. Verse 10. Then behold, then behold. Okay, he's unconscious. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Now, this is probably Gabriel at this point. He's, he's shown one like the Son of Man, no doubt. We see the description. It's clear. And then, to be consistent with the other visions, this must be Gabriel. You remember back in chapter 8, verse 16, Daniel says, I heard the voice of a man between, between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and he said, Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. In chapter 9, Daniel says, verse 21, I was still speaking in prayer when Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. Verse 11, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. When he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from, this, from the first day that you set your heart to understand this, and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. For 21 days, and then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. 
Is heaven three weeks away from earth? <laughs> no. No. This angelic visitor is telling us that there's conflict behind the return from captivity. Unseen forces of evil. This represents the great spiritual battle that, uh, that, that goes on behind the scenes as God's kingdom moves forward. So we see the idea of resistance in, in battle between angelic forces. This prince of Persia, no doubt, is demonic power working to thwart the purposes of God through this nation, Persia. He's assigned to Persia. This demon is assigned to Persia to oppose the people of God and the plan of God. That's what we see. Now, think about this. This is just speculation, but think about this. Who do you suppose in the book of Esther might have incited Haman, a, a Persian official, to destroy every single Jew in the kingdom? That's what demons do. That's what wicked forces do. They incite the rulers of the world to oppose the kingdom of God by way of persecuting his people. You see that in the Revelation, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're shown that time and time again. Notice this Michael, prince, verse 21, is prince over Israel. Michael. He's dispatched to help. And he's the same angelic figure who shows up in Revelation chapter 12. We read Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that is Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That is at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bound then after the ascension of Christ, from deceiving the nations. He's not bound from evil influence. He's bound from deceiving the nations as he once did. Michael's also mentioned um, in Jude 9, um, with the, you know, the disputing of the body of Moses and his burial. Jude 9. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, does he not? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Take it up, put it on, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, he says, but against the rulers, against the powers, against world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, it's important we have a proper perspective of the devil's power, amen? So we can stand and resist. You're not called, caused to jab at him. You're not called to curse at him or yell at him or talk to him. You're, stole, you're told to take up the whole armor and stand firm against the wiles, the schemes of the devil. And one of his schemes is, is to get you to think that there's a demon behind every bush. So you walk around in fear. You know these kind of people? Uh, that's demons. Are, demons are everywhere. That's one scheme. He persuades people that Satan, that is, he persuades people that, that he's all-powerful, and he's not. Only God is. Another scheme or strategy of Satan 
is that we, we blame every sin on Satan. You know, if you're given to anger, you know, someone will say, you, you must have the demon of, of rage or the demon of drug abuse or the demon of alcoholism, the demon of this, that, or the other. When all the, Those are works of the flesh. That's a strategy. The most deceiving strategy, I believe, is that Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, no doubt, usually does it dressed as an angel of light. Cults, false religion, false doctrine. A great scheme. So balance, no doubt, um, is required in all things because there is a tendency for men to become obsessed with the angelic realm, particularly the demonic realm. That's foolish, that's dangerous. Keep your eyes fixed upon the Lord. Take up the whole armor of God. Put it on every day so that you can stand and simply resist him. That's it. That's all we're called to do. Praying always. And prayer is woven throughout the armor of God. Notice verse 14. Now I have come. Okay, now notice the words, beloved. Notice. I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. Friends, latter days is a technical term in the Old Testament for the times of Messiah, not the end of the world. Last days, from an Old Testament perspective, looks forward to the messianic era. What era, what era rather, do we live in? The kingdom era, the messianic kingdom era. He has come. If you remember back in chapter 2 and verse 28, Daniel interpreted the king's dream as regarding things taking place before and leading up to the latter days. The coming to the latter days. That is, once again, which coming of Christ? First or the second? First coming, his first coming. The vision of chapter 11 also shows, we'll see in brief next week, that what happens in Daniel's time up to the latter days, that is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Horrific things by way of conflict, war. In Acts 2, verse 17, Peter preaches and he cites the prophet Joel, saying what? In the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. When was that fulfilled? Pentecost. And to this day, the latter days. Days. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these what days? Last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. In 1 John 2, with the coming of Messiah, Many will claim to be him. John writes, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Not just the latter days. 
It is the last hour. So verse 14, from the, for the vision pertains to days yet future. And friends, that is from Daniel's perspective, not ours. From our perspective, these things have been fulfilled. Verse 18, then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So Daniel's lifted up and he's strengthened now to receive um, the vision. And some of the events in the vision um, focus on the rise and fall of empires in the 2nd and 3rd century B.C. Specifically, the remnants of Alexander's Greek empire, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, which we touched on. I'm in chapter 8. As we follow chapter 11, it's kind of tedious to follow it through historically. You're trying to track two dynasties, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. They're kings, Ptolemies 1 through 7, Seleucid 1 through 3, and Antiochus 1 through 4. So that would take us weeks. We're not gonna, we're, we don't have time to do that. So next Lord's Day, we'll touch on it because I did explain some of it when we were in, in chapter um, 8. You know, so, some of these you may have heard of and you probably um, really don't care about, so um, historically. Uh, but nevertheless, this is very, very important information for these returning exiles and their descendants since Judah was directly located between the, Tole- the, the, the Ptolemies, the Ptolemic Empire in the south, that would be Egypt of um, Cleopatra, and the Seleucids to the north, that is the kingdom of Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, manifestation of God. And we met him in the vision um, of chapter 8, foretelling um, of his rise and then the desecration um, of the temple which will lead to the the Maccabean revolt in all from which I read some history of Josephus which was a pretty a gross thing and um, never really seen things that gross with regard to people and destruction and warfare until what happened in 70 AD by way of Rome. Now, what makes the vision of Daniel 11 so different from the one given to us in chapters 8 and 9 is that this final vision commences with a visitation from the divine. I believe is pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He appears to Daniel in radiant glory, though not fully unveiled glory, or Daniel wouldn't exist, after which he regains consciousness. A hand is placed on on him by one angelic visitor where he is now strengthened and prepared to receive this final vision. 
informing him that these historical struggles um, of God's people, that which is to come, um, reflect a much greater battle that's unseen. It's cosmic. There's a spiritual war that continues to rage. Okay, Christ has come. He's defeated Satan. He destroyed the works of Satan, we read in 1 John 3. Okay, D-Day has come. You remember the analogy of World War II, D-Day, V-Day. The war was won on D-Day. Battles went on for, what, 11 months or so. There was still bloodshed. Christ has come. He's the victorious king. The battle still rages until the ultimate end when he returns in glory to consummate the kingdom he's already established at his first coming. Notice verse 21. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Now, that's not a direct reference um, to Scripture, uh, but, this, but with regard to the vision given him, that is, according to the decreed will of Almighty God, the revelation of his decree given in prophecy will be fulfilled. In other words, it will come to pass. It has more to do with that than it does the panoply of Scripture. This is accurate and an appropriate phrase to communicate the fact that God himself has written history. That's what he says. It will come to pass. So that would, if you think about it, would create great optimism on the part of God's people who will experience all these great conflicts slash warfare. It's going to come to pass. So when they pick up and read chapters 10, 11, and 12 in the future, that is of Daniel, they will be able to find some level of comfort. God decreed this. He said it would happen. So we see in verse 1, great conflicts, warfare, that is about to come. And this puts hope in our hearts, I, I trust, knowing that all of history is written in a book. He's decreed it all. And you can be sure, sure that you're sealed from the just punishment of God because your name is in another book. Amen? It's the book of life. The book of the Lamb. Inscribed before the foundation of the earth. So whatever happens on this earth by way of conflict, by way of warfare, by way of persecution, book of Revelation, you're sealed from the ultimate just wrath of God. The wrath of man, it might touch your flesh. It can't do a thing to your soul. And we see here also the principle that the kingdom of God has advanced and continues to advance through prayer, which is a means to God's end. That's a mystery in itself. God ordains it. He preordains it. And we pray through it. And our answers are prayer. Our, our prayers are answered as we pray according to the will of God. That's why I like to say often, take up the word of God, look at the promises of God, and pray them back to God. Because it will come to pass. His will will be done. So this sets the stage um, for the last vision. Amen? Amen? And amen.
Now, we do have time. We close with that. I want to go back. <clears throat> if you look at these charts, the 70th week of Daniel, I want to make a couple um, quick words with regard to that. Um, and again, as I said last week, friends, if you simply pick up and read Daniel 9, okay, we go back to Daniel 9 for a, mem- a moment, and you read of a seven-week, 70th, 70th, 70-week period, you have a 7, a 62, okay, that's 69, and then you have a one-week, that's, that's 70. So if you have the seven-year span, metaphorically speaking, with regard to the rebuilding of the temple in Daniel's time, and then 62 weeks until Messiah comes, how many weeks is that? 69. As you count along, what comes after 69? 70. It's simple. So the one week that we read about that is left in in Daniel 9 will be the 70th week. There is no way that you would pick up and read the text and conclude that there's a gap there. And that that 70th week is yet future. Unless you come to the text with the presupposition of a system and you lay that, or you impose that presupposition upon the text. And as I said last week, if you do that with any part of Scripture, you can conclude anything you want to conclude. Messiah, we read, will confirm his covenant in verse 27 of chapter 9. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is, Christ will confirm it. He will ratify it. Literally, he will make it strong, causing the covenant to prevail by way of his death, burial, and resurrection. And then in verse 27, chapter 9, we read, in the middle of the week, he, the question is, he who? Christ or Antichrist? If you're a simple reading of the text, it has to be Messiah. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Okay, not Antichrist persecuting Israel in some future temple, yet future to us. No, he put a stop to it, and he, he proved it by way of the 70 AD judgment that came upon the temple and the sacrificial system. When Rome came in, there was an abomination of desolation, and God destroyed that temple, and indeed not one stone was left upon another, as Jesus said. Now, even though Daniel never explains the second half of the 70th week, if you look at the chart, you see 70 plus 62 equals 69. You have the decree of Cyrus, 538 B.C., the baptism of Jesus. We, we, we believe that to be the anointed one that Daniel 9 describes. That begins the first half of the last week. The first half of the 70th week. 70 A.D. comes midway through. The sacrificial system is done. It's destroyed. God gave them 40 years to repent. They didn't repent. Of course, and he levels the place as he said he would. And then you have the second half of the last week. Now, although Daniel doesn't explain it in Daniel 9, John does in the book of Revelation. The apostle John explains it in the book of Revelation, whose vision in many ways fulfills the prophecies of Daniel ultimately. Because on numerous occasions... In Christ's revelation, he speaks about a time of what? John does. Three and a half weeks. Time, times and half a time. 
1260 days, all synonymous terms. For instance, Revelation 11, 2 and 3. John speaks about 42 months. He then speaks about 1260 days. He does the same thing in Revelation 12, 6 and 13, 5. In Revelation 12 and verse 4, John speaks of a time, times and half a time, three and a half years. So all of those time references apply to circumstances after the mission of Messiah is accomplished and he ascends to the throne. The second half of the last week is the persecution that will fall upon God's people on this earth. And that is the time period between when Messiah arrives, dies, ascends, and his second coming. So in other words, we're in the 70th week. That's what we teach. Church age. age. So the Apostle John indicates for us that this three and a half year period of the last week is actually the time of exile, that is the time of tribulation of God's people between Jesus' first and second comings. That's why John opens the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. I am John, your brother, both in the tribulation and the, and the kingdom. There now. The age of the church militant as the kingdom continues to expand the stone cut out of a mountain without hands turns into a mountain that covers the, the entire earth. That was the vision given to Nebuchadnezzar. Christ is its fulfillment. The 70th week has come. It has come. And we're in the second half of the last week. I hope that makes sense. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for these visions and the fulfillment of these visions, our Lord Jesus, who fulfills them all. We thank you for his sake. Amen.